Hi, this is Martin. Before we get started with this episode, I just wanted to mention that next week's episode is going to be the first episode of a little podcast miniseries that I'm calling Credits Amended, which is about situations where songs have been copied or plagiarized, and there have been songwriters accusing other songwriters of stealing from their work. And I'm doing a lot of research on the topic, and I hope that it's interesting to you, that it's something thing that's entertaining, and I just wanted to make a more well-thought-out, researched sort of podcast. It's going to be sort of a change in pace, but I hope for the better. Um, But for the meantime, here is more of a normal podcast episode. So (laughs) now on to the introduction. Throughout the years, I've had a really rocky relationship with music theory. Sometimes... I've been really, really, really good with music theory, and we've been getting along, and it's been amazing. Sometimes I've really disliked music theory, and sometimes I just feel a little bit more ambivalent towards the subject. But this is that story. Hello and welcome to Everyone's Special and No One Is, a podcast about obscure, misunderstood, and or controversial topics related to music. My name is Martin Chazelle, and right now it is 7.45pm at night, but it might as well feel like it's 10.45pm at night because I have had a very, very, very long week. There have been lots of things going on, both in my like personal time in my personal life and just like stuff at work which is just accumulating in a lot of stress for me at the moment <laughs> but i'm going to try and set that aside as much as possible and still record this episode because i still want to be present i still want to just remove myself from that and record an episode with positive energy rather than negative energy in it, uh, because I think that's helpful both for me and for anyone listening to this podcast. I know there's a lot of negativity in the world, but yeah, let's just let's talk about something fun. <laughs> let's talk about music theory. I think music theory is fun. That is a hot take. Um, I say in the intro to every episode in this podcast that it's about controversial, potentially, topics related to music, and I think saying that music theory is fun is potentially a controversial argument to make. I mean, not really, but there are plenty of musicians out there who really, really, really have no patience for music theory at all. It's not for them. Uh, but I like it, and I'm going to talk about why I like music theory and why I think it's good and useful and helpful. And yeah, and and just to like, just to sort of start from the ground up, when I say music theory, I'm talking about just the sort of the study of musical notes, musical harmony, melody, the way melody, harmony, and rhythm all interact. Um, You can take courses in music theory. 
Uh, if you have a music teacher, if you take music lessons, your teacher's probably going to teach you music theory at some point, because to pay someone for music lessons and never learn anything about music theory just seems kind of pointless. I mean, even if you're learning to play drums or some other percussion instrument, like you definitely need to learn music theory about how rhythms interact. Um, even if you're not learning about like the notes and the melody and harmony and stuff, but like, I don't know. I feel like that stuff still is just good to have at least a basic understanding of anyway, even if you're not playing, um, a melodic instrument, even if you're just singing, you know, music theory can help you understand what you're singing and why you're singing it. So, uh, and also in this episode, I'm going to be getting into the relationship between music theory and ear training. Um, and as you already know, based on the title of this episode, but ear training is just like literally just training your ear to be able to hear different melodies and harmonies and chords, um, training your ear to recognize and put into practice the things that you would learn, say, in a music theory class, for instance. And we'll be getting more into those sorts of examples and things. But, like, I don't know. I just... um, Talking about, like, an actual dedicated episode to music theory and ear training is something that had not occurred to me until literally earlier this morning. (laughs) I was like, oh, why don't I do an episode on that? Which is funny because I honestly, like... Music theory is a really, really, really significant part of my background with music, and I I know I talked about it a bit, a little bit, in the series where I told my, my story throughout my journey, music throughout the years, you know the deal, um, but, but not too much, and I feel like, yeah, there's definitely a lot still to explore just on that topic, um, so... Yeah, sorry, I just hit the microphone with my hand if you heard a low rumble sound. <laughs> um, anyway, so I have my uh, little keyboard in front of me, so I can do like a... or whatever, but um, yes. So, going back all the way to the beginning, my introduction into just playing music at all was when I was in piano lessons. My mom got me playing piano lessons in a very, very, very young age. I was apparently three years old. Do I have any memory of being three years old and taking piano lessons? Not really, if I'm being honest. I think my earliest memories are probably closer to age four or five, with the exception of maybe like one or two random things from earlier than that. But I do remember... um my first piano teacher, I remember going into, it wasn't um, like, later I was in situations where, oh, the piano teacher would like drive to your house and teach you on your piano, or um, you would like go to like a specific facility designated for music lessons. Um, Just my original piano lessons were in this building, and I don't know if this is totally accurate but as a kid i just remember it being this massive building like like imagine like a huge business office with like multiple floors and big open um 
lounge area. I don't know about lounge. It wasn't necessarily like a luxury type building, but in my in my memory as a kid, uh, it was very very official looking, almost like a museum. I would say, um, and we would go in and we'd have to like drive a ways because it was in, I think um, like downtown Minneapolis or nearby downtown Minneapolis. So that was like a 40 minute drive from our house. So it was like a very big event going to piano lessons every week. And uh, yeah, we would park, we would go in this huge building and we would walk all the way up to like one of the middle floors and then go into this room where there were not one but two pianos one of them was a well sorry they were both actually grand pianos but they were like mini grand pianos <laughs> you know um so just for those of you who aren't pianists um a grand piano is like the stereotypical like concert piano like what you would expect to see on a concert stage uh the strings are all laid out horizontally within the piano and it's got that um, classic curved shape to it. Um, whereas the upright piano just stands up and you'll typically see it against a wall, like in a songwriting room or in a practice room or something. Um, I don't know if I really needed to explain that to anyone who listens to this podcast. (laughs) Guys, it's late and I'm stressed out. Forgive me. Um, and anyway, so what this piano teacher had were two, mini grand pianos so like the smallest possible size of grand piano crammed in a room that probably was not much bigger than my bedroom right now um and that was because she could have one piano where she would teach and one piano where she would have the student play i think that's how it worked i don't know maybe my memory's failing me and maybe we were actually just playing on the same piano because no i think there were two pianos my mom will listen to this episode and then correct me because <laughs> I'm sure she remembers it better than I do. Um, but yeah, so uh, as as a kid, my piano lessons were from the Suzuki School of Piano Training. And while I've never actually, you know, like later now that I've grown up, I've never like done any looking into or research on the Suzuki method. But as a kid, what the Suzuki method was to me was just this sort of alternative, like special type of piano instruction. The way my mom had explained it to me is that, Martin, you're taking Suzuki lessons, which is a really good, really awesome piano school. It differs from the sort of traditional piano school in that traditionally you would sit down and you would learn to read sheet music and you would learn to play the notes on the page right from day one. But Suzuki is all about learning to play by ear, learning based on the teacher showing you how to actually form your hand on the piano keys so that first and foremost, you're learning to play and you're learning to mimic and you're learning to uh, actually have the technique. And then later, much later, they start to give you the sheet music and you start to slowly learn how to read music. So literally my first lessons were just uh, like the teacher would just say, okay, Martin, hold your hand on these three notes and repeat after me. So she would play like in the upper octave and then I would do in the lower octave or whatever. If I don't know, I'm just imagining that we were playing on the same piano, but maybe we weren't. Maybe there were two different pianos. That's not the point. Um, so it was all about 
uh, mimicking and practicing, and then it's like, okay, now do it together. You know? Um, <laughs> so the other thing about my Suzuki piano lessons is that we would, like, because so much of the emphasis was on developing your ear and learning to translate what you hear in your head to your fingers on the notes, uh, my mom was instructed to play CDs. Well, I don't know if she was instructed to do this or if this was just her idea. She'll have to have to comment on the podcast later. <laughs> Maybe I can bring her back on and record another episode with my mom. But uh, my memory is that it was very important for us to listen to CDs of the songs that we were learning to play on piano at nights while we were falling asleep and a bit while we were asleep. I'm assuming my mom probably turned them off at some point in the night because we don't really need to... I mean, I guess if the CD was playing the entire night, then that would just even more seep into our subconscious mind. But <laughs> uh, yeah, so this was... And when I say we, I mean me and my uh, brother Mitchell, who's a year and a half younger than me. We were both learning piano at similar times. Of course, I started a little earlier than he did because... I'm a year and a half older, but there was a long time in our lives where we were both taking piano lessons and both taking Suzuki piano lessons specifically. Um, and then we would like prepare certain pieces and then give recitals and it would be really stressful because it's like, you don't want to make a mistake and there's all these people in the audience. And in reality, it's just like, you know, like 15 parents and like, 10 or 15 other students that are also really really young <laughs> it's like in the retrospect it doesn't feel like huge stakes but looking back at it it's like oh it was so stressful had to play all the notes exactly um so yeah so i think i was learning piano for around like four or five years potentially without ever learning how to read sheet music or if I was presented with sheet music, it would have been just extremely basic, like, this is where middle C is on the keyboard. This is a, or uh, this is where middle C is on the, on the clef. This is what a treble clef is, <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, so lear reading sheet music wasn't really a big part of my development. And I think what that has sort of caused, I mean, I, I do tend to be very, very reliant on my ear. And to this day, even though I've since learned sheet music, I, if somebody asks me to sight read something, like, <laughs> there is not a chance that I'm going to be able to do that successfully. Like, especially on the piano, it might be a little easier to sight read on the saxophone because there's just one melody line that you're learning to play. But on the piano where there's like intersecting notes and chords and stuff, like, even the most basic of piano pieces, I would be extremely slow sight reading it. But once I learn something and practice it enough, I can get really, really good at playing it um, from memory. And I think that is one of the ways in which me and my mom are different when it comes to piano. She was raised with the traditional method and she was always learning to take basically the sheet music comes first. <laughs> and so... Uh, she got really, really, really good at sight reading, uh, just playing the music just based on the sheet music that was presented to her. But in terms of like picking up on something and listening to it and then playing it, that would be a lot harder for her. But anyway, um, so the first time I learned that 
music is actually based on something called chords and harmony, and that those were sort of the back the background of most music compositions, um, or at least most Western classical music compositions. <laughs> um, that that knowledge was given to me not when I was in Suzuki lessons. So I started the Suzuki lessons around age three. Um, around age, I want to say seven, six or seven, I think I switched to traditional lessons. Um, our teacher was cutting down on a lot of students, and me and my brother were not one of her star students that she wanted to keep. Um, so we got cut from her list, <laughs> which is amazing. Um, yeah, so teacher dropped like a lot of her students. Uh, we had to find another teacher. My mom found teacher that did not teach the Suzuki method, was more traditional. Um, I think at first she came to our house, and then we later started going to her house, or maybe the other way around. I forget exactly how it worked, but um, we did learn music. I did learn just the very, very basics about chords. Like, this is a C major chord. And there's a lot of songs that use C major chords, <laughs> you know. I'm not sure if at that time, you know, when I was around like 8, 9, 10 or so, I don't think I would be able to say much more about music theory at that time. Uh, but the... And and I continued to learn classical compositions and give lessons. Not, not give lessons. Gosh, what did I just say? Um, take lessons and give recitals. Uh, there were... I mean, performance is an important part of learning to play an instrument, so it makes sense to have recitals, regardless of what school of piano you're in. Um, so, yeah, 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 yeah. <sighs> the first time I really actually learned about what music theory is, aside from just being able to identify notes on a page, um, was when I switched not from... Uh, so, so originally I was in Suzuki piano lessons, then I was in quote-unquote traditional piano lessons, and then third, starting in, I believe, fifth or sixth grade. Or no, it might have been seventh grade. Whatever, it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, I started taking piano lessons at um, a company in Maple Grove, Minnesota, I think. Um, and Maple Grove, that's totally incorrect. I know this doesn't really matter to anyone other than people who I grew up with, but it was definitely Plymouth, not Maple Grove. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Uh, so I took piano lessons at that company. It was just behind uh, the Rainbow Foods grocery store. And this little tiny building compared to the massive, huge building that I went to uh, when I was really little. Um, and my piano teacher was... My piano teacher there was very, very forward-thinking. He was very big into, we're going to teach you the practical skills, everything you need to know to actually learn to get around as a piano player and be independent and not just be limited to what you can play on the page. Because up until that point, all of my instruction on piano is basically like, oh, if you want to learn to play a certain piece, what you do is you first obtain a copy of the music 
and then you learn to play it based on looking at the notes. Um, I guess I just kind of contradicted myself. Uh, the, the, the switch was when I was really little taking Suzuki lessons, it was like the teacher shows you. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Sorry. So there were, there were two methods that I had been taught. One, somebody sits down at the piano and demonstrates how to play something for you. That's method number one. Method number two is you learn sheet music and you play what's on the page. Right. But never the, the difference with my third piano teacher was that I finally started to understand that you can actually learn how to play certain pieces of music by trusting your gut, first and foremost, using your ear, second, and third, having an understanding of chords and harmony is immensely useful. <laughs> um, you can actually, uh, and, and I've, you know, learned to be able to do this, you can learn to play a more or less reasonable accompaniment of a song, particularly like a pop song that has a simple repeating chord progression, and pick it up and be able to accompany a singer, for instance, with not that much uh, prior effort. You know, you, you don't have to spend hours and hours and hours learning to uh, you know, downloading the sheet music and learning every single note, you can just kind of play a chord progression and then they can sing along to it if that's what you want to do. Um, or you can, you know, sing along to it yourself or whatever. It doesn't have to be this thing where you spend days and days and days and months and months trying to play every single note exactly. That was the, that was the really big shift for me, learning that chords in itself could be the foundation for how you play music and you could play a song just by being given a chord progression um like you know c g a minor f as opposed to actual sheet music with all those chords being written out that somebody could tell you these are the chords i want you to play rather than handing you an actual formally written uh, sheet music or whatever. And sometimes I wonder like how my, uh, how the way I think about music and conceptualize music and write music, how that would be different if I had started learning at a young age an instrument like guitar instead, which for a guitarist, like, uh, unless you're studying like an extremely specific genre of guitar, like jazz, classical, um, etc. Like the, the idea that, music is just based on chords and somebody gives you a chord progression that you play it like that's that's guitar 101 <laughs> you know um so it it took me a much much longer roundabout way to get to the point where i realized that music is based on chord progressions by taking the piano route as opposed to the guitar route but i'm honestly really thankful for it because i love the piano first and foremost and i think that it has helped develop my ear in certain ways and given me a much better understanding than if it was just like, oh, here's the grid of how you finger a chord on the fretboard. Do that now, you know, without without under without having such a visual reference of what scales and um chords look like on a piano. You know, I think that's what I've heard just from talking with a lot of other people studying music, you know, from going to college for music and stuff. It's like when you play piano, you can visually see, oh, a scale, like a C major scale, the most basic scale without any sharps or flats, is 
Um, and you can see that it has the first is a whole step, and then another whole step, and then a half step, whole, 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 half. You know, whereas on a guitar, which has frets, and every single fret is exactly the same amount of space away from another fret, uh, it can be much harder to conceptualize the idea that a major scale is whole, whole, half, whole, 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 half, you know? Um, and I think most people listening to this podcast kind of have a basic understanding of music theory, but just like uh, what I mean by whole step is if you were to just play every single note chromatically, like all the notes right next to each other on the piano or on a fretboard, it would be... A um, but a whole step skips that little step in the middle. So as opposed to anyway, so that's kind of a whole step versus a half step, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I am, I am really grateful for my piano background, but anyway, getting back to the story. So in these piano lessons at this, uh, music lessons building in Plymouth, Minnesota, um, we were that 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 is actually where I first learned the whole whole half whole 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 half formula, um, but we didn't just stop there. We went from there to oh, and you can actually change around that formula to give you different modes, and um, a mode is basically like you take a scale and then you shift it so it starts on a different note of the scale. So the most basic uh, example of that would be C major is. Oh, it sounds bad with the pedal down. Um, but D Dorian is just those same notes, but starting on D. Um, and then it, it goes up from there. But <laughs> um, like G, uh, I'm gonna forget all the fancy names for these modes. I swear, if it was like four years ago and I was still in college and I was in music theory and I was like actively thinking about things like the names of modes all the time, I could just rattle them off. I could give you all seven modes. I remember Locrian at least, which is the one that should be the hardest to remember. Locrian starts in the seventh note of the scale. Uh, but anyway, the thing that my piano teacher really urged me to think about modes, he was like, it, it's, it's the easy way to think about them by just taking like a C major scale and then just shifting it so it starts on different notes. But if you really want to learn the difference between the modes, you should take everything so that it starts and ends on C. Um, so if you want to learn what a minor scale is, you don't just play the C major scale starting on A, you know, which would be the easy way out. Because you can do that without playing any of the black keys on the keyboard. Uh, but if you want to learn what a minor scale is, you take a C major scale and then you actually make it minor. You do... So that's... Um, if you were to write it out with, um, with numbers that represent the notes of the scale, you know, so just like regular C major would be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Um, minor would be one, two, flat three, four, five, flat six, flat seven, eight. Um, and writing it in with those flats is a much better way to help you understand the difference between the modes rather than just, oh, we're gonna play all these 
random C major scales starting on different different notes. Um, so uh, the Dorian mode would be one, two, flat three, four, five, uh, natural six, flat seven, eight. And then the Locrian scale would be something crazy like one, flat two, flat three, natural four? Uh, one, flat two, flat three, four, flat five, flat six, flat seven, eight. I don't know. Somebody's going to have to fact check me on that. It's been a while since I learned these modes. <laughs> but the reason why modes help you is especially, especially in the world of jazz, uh, modes are how you learn to associate certain chords with certain scales. So for instance, if you see a dominant chord, you can immediately think, oh, that's blank mode. And I, I'm going to kick myself if I can't remember the name of the mode that starts on the fifth of the scale. Give me one second. I have to Google this. Ah, I swear my, my middle school, high school self is yelling at me right now. He's furious that I can't remember this freaking word. Okay. I'm looking up major modes. What are the musical modes in music theory is the first result. On a web co- website called Scoove. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Ionian, Dorian, Phrygian, Lydian, Mixolydian. That was what I couldn't remember. Gosh. And then it's Aeolian, which is also natural minor, and then Locrian. Um, great. Okay, so the Mixolydian scale is the name of the mode where it's one, two, three, four, five, six, flat seven, eight. Um, and that is really based on this dominant seven chord. And I guess just like brief context, so that's that's a combination of a major chord, which is just based on the major scale, but then it has this flat seven in it, and that's what makes it sound really jazzy and dissonant, yet still somehow sort of like happy. Um, so if you're playing jazz and you want to improvise and you see that there's a dominant chord on the page, then all you have to do, oh, it's like it's C dominant. Well, then you just pull out the C mixolydian scale, and that's what you would use if you were soloing a melody on it. Or whatever. Um, and likewise, if you see like a C minor seven chord so it's very similar as a dominant seven chord but the minor seven has that minor third in it so it's rather than it's so that would be a minor seven chord and that is based on the well i guess it could be the natural minor the aeolian is the name of the mode scale or it could be the dorian scale um i guess you would have two options there i forget as a jazz improviser, what you would use, how you would differentiate Dorian and Aeolian if you're just seeing uh, the chord. But anyway, uh, so it's like you start to associate all of these modes with all of these chords, and you start to develop just this instinctive ability to um, be able to look at a lead sheet. And a lead sheet is just like 
the melody of the the jazz tune usually they call it like the head it's the thing that you keep coming back to it's like a chorus that kind of starts and bookends the song uh, so you're looking at the lead sheet and it just has a single melody with chord symbols written over it and when you get to each of those chords rather than like playing the chord you know you have this full scale so that you're not just limited to the notes in the chord the but you can actually play in between or whatever. Um, and yeah, that whole idea that you would have to learn um, not just seven different modes, you know, because there are seven modes based on the major scale, but then learn to play all of those modes in all 12 different keys and then be able to immediately. So seven times 12, that's already what? 94 <laughs> different 94 martin mental math come on 84 right 7 times 12 is 84 7 times 10 is 70 plus 7 times 4 is 28 28 98 gosh i suck at mental math i work in royalty accounting you would think that i would be okay at crunching numbers in my head Wow, that was pathetic. But in the spirit of just recording this podcast, I'm not going to edit that out. Um, anyway, um, yes, 7 times 12 is 98. 98 different modes that you would have to learn and practice and be able to immediately recall and not just be able to play those, those scales, but be able to immediately move your fingers on the piano or on the saxophone or whatever instrument and be able to immediately play those and and the and the lead sheet is changing so much like there's so many chords coming at you all the time like it's you may only have if a song is at 120 beats per minute which is you know a, sort of an average tempo that means that each measure is only lasting 2 seconds um <laughs> cuz cuz there are four beats in a measure and if each beat takes um like 60 beats per minute would be uh, each beat is one second, and when 20 beats per minute is each beat is half a second. So if a song is in 120 beats per minute, then you only have two seconds for each chord. So imagine you're playing this complex jazz tune, and you're expected to just immediately come up and be able to recall all of these modes and to be able to switch between them every two seconds. And also on top of that, while not not even having to like think about that like the idea is that it just becomes instinctive and that you can do it without even thinking but then be able to combine that instinctual knowledge with the ability to come up with compelling melodies that are fun and enjoyable to listen to that is so 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 mind blowing to me that there are people who study these things and are able to do that successfully. Um, this is the number one reason why I got jaded with these particular piano lessons. As much as I loved it and as much as it was really, really helpful, my teacher really, really wanted me. It, it felt like um, he really wanted me to study these things and learn to play jazz and learn to become good at these modes. And I just, I had no patience for practicing my modes, um, you know, every, 
every day for an hour or whatever. I, I don't remember if there were any explicit expectations like that. But it's like, in order to learn all those 98 modes, you have to, it requires an immense amount of practice. It's one thing to have a conceptual understanding of this is what a mode is, and these are how you derive them on the scale. Uh, and it's a completely other thing entirely to be able to do it flawlessly without needing a second to think about it, you know? Um, so, yeah, I, I really, I got burnt out on the jazz stuff in those lessons. But um, part of, as I was saying earlier, the, the thing that I really, really gained from taking that time to study the music theory that um, was really helpful was just being able to apply it to maybe an easier genre, pop music, <laughs> you know? Um, so it's just, I wonder if I can just pull an example off off the top of my head. Um, that's maybe going to be difficult. Um, <laughs> but so one other thing that I did study quite a bit in those lessons that I have less emotional baggage attached to it would be uh, this idea of ear training. And I know I haven't really talked about that much in this episode yet, despite it being an episode title, but uh, the thing is, as, as long as you study all of these concepts of music theory, it makes absolutely no difference unless you're able to apply them actually to uh, real-life examples with actual audio rather than just an exercise of looking at what's what's on the page. You have to be able to translate it to your instrument and vice versa. You have to be able to, or at least it really helps to be able to look at a piece of music and have an idea already of what that's going to sound in your head before you start playing it on your instrument. And if you're ever wanting to like transcribe anything, transcribing is when you listen to a piece of music and write it down in notation, um, in sheet music. Like, that absolutely requires a really strong ear and a knowledge of music theory, you know? Uh, so my teacher had me going to musictheory.net and practicing. Um, musictheory.net just has a bunch of fun uh, lessons and exercises about music theory. Um, and so I would do these... Um, these interval ear training exercises, which was really fun. And I I have only only warm memories attached to this because this is something that I actually excelled at <laughs> that that I found that I had a knack for and practiced a lot and got got pretty good at it. So I wanna give you just like an example of what this is like. I mean feel free to go to musictheory.net on your own. Um they also have an app called Tenuto, but um, I'm just going to kind of do it on my phone and hold my phone into the microphone so it hopefully picks up what it is. So what I'm looking at right now is um, there's a little audio icon at the top where I can press to play the sound, um, which is totally randomized. And then I have a bunch of options for the different intervals, which relate to the number of steps away apart they are on a keyboard. You know, just really basic. That would be a major third. That would be a minor third. That's a perfect fifth. That's an octave. And when you're learning ear training, it helps to have references to different songs. So when I was practicing these um, 
I'll I'll show you it in context, but I would be like, oh, yeah, that sounds like this other song that I know, which I know I've already previously identified that that song starts with like a major third or whatever. But anyway, so I'll just show you um, a, a couple examples of this and like my thought process in middle school of going about working on these because <laughs> I just I find it really fun to look back on. Oh, I don't know if that got in the microphone. Wait, let me try that again. Yeah, okay. So in my brain, duh, duh, um, that was just the random sound that the website picked. And duh, duh, that sounds like blackness awakens, visions come alive, uh, which is a dream theater song that I was really into at the time. And I know that that dream theater song starts with a perfect fourth. So I'm going to select perfect fourth. I'm going to tap that on the screen. And it, uh, it then <laughs> uh, it flashed green just now, which means it's correct. And then the website automatically played another interval, uh, but I wasn't holding my phone up to the mic. So I'm going to do it again with holding my phone up to the mic. Duh, duh. That kind of sounds like um, this Rush song, which is an instrumental called YYZ, um, <laughs> and that would be a reference of mine for the tritone, which is a diminished fifth. So I'm going to select that and see if I was correct. Yeah, I was right. <laughs> see, okay, we'll do just like two more of these. I know this probably isn't the most exciting thing to listen to, but I, I really get a kick out of it. Um, okay, okay, here we go, here we go. Da, da. Um, that sounds like a dream theater song. I forget what it's called, but because like da 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 da. Oh, Enigma Machine. Right. Um, I think. Enigma something. Um, so that would be a minor third. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. Last last interval. Dun, dun. Well, that's just the same as the first one. That's a perfect fourth. Okay, great. <laughs> um, so I got really good at the interval ear training, uh, which, by the way, the most useful application of interval ear training is being able to transcribe melody lines. Because if you can hear the difference between, um, or, or like the distance away between notes, then you can take what you hear and you can write it down on the page. Um, but now we're going to do chord identification ear training, which would be particularly useful in writing down harmonies um, if you're like transcribing a piano line or trying to learn like what are, what are these vocal harmonies going on. Um, it gets it gets a bit trickier because uh, when I say harmony, I mean like uh, in this context up to, well, three notes or more. Um, so this would be just like, that would be an interval. Um, you could play it simultaneously, or you could play it, um, or I guess, I don't know, uh, I, I, maybe, maybe a music theory professor would say that playing, um, playing the thing, like, that would be playing an interval in harmony, meaning simultaneously, um, and there's no requirement on number of notes for harmony other than there must be at least two at the same time, I guess, I don't know, I don't want to get bogged down on all the definitions um, this is not a super fact-checked episode anyway, but like, 
three notes or more is definitely a chord. Um, so it'd be a major chord. But anyway, so I was just saying that when you're when you're training on chords, it gets and, and notes played all at once. Um, it gets a lot trickier because it's harder to hear all the exact differences between the notes. And to be honest, I never got like really great at chord ear training. I was able to do it like kind of okay, but it was never really my forte as opposed to the interval ear training, which I really liked. <laughs> but here is um, uh, musictheory.net chord ear training. And I'm going to try out uh, a couple of these. That just sounds like a minor chord to me. I can't really explain that one other than just being really familiar and playing a lot of minor chords. So I'm going to select minor triad. Yeah, it was right. Great. <laughs> okay, what's the next one? Da, 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 da. Sometimes like arpeggiating it in my head kind of helps. Da, 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 da. Da, da, da. So that'd be like a major chord. Da, 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 da. Um, sounds like a major seventh to me. Um, major seventh chord. Yeah, it was right. Wow. Uh, I'll tell you, when I was practicing for this section of the podcast and I tried out the um the chord ear training, I did a lot worse than I'm doing right now. Uh, let's just do one more. That's another uh major set. Is that just a major triad? Wait. Yeah, I think that's just a major triad. I don't hear that seventh in there. Okay, so that was right. Okay, so I'm not bad at chordier training, I guess. Um, when it gets a little bit dicier with all those like diminished chords and diminished sevenths and augmenteds, <laughs> it's a little bit, little bit trickier. Um, and bear in mind what what I'm showing you here. This is just like very 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 bare bones um ear training exercises when it gets a lot harder is for instance when you are in an ear training class i took i I think i took an ear training class in high school um yeah yeah i I definitely did um i had the option to take an ear training class in college but i wasn't really interested in it and it wasn't required so i didn't do it um it, it was required for a lot of other music majors but the songwriting major we didn't have to take um your training i don't think anyway um i was just saying it does get more difficult in those sorts of situations when you are playing or having to write down like entire melodies like they will play you eight measures of a melody and then you have to just write that down on notation on a piece of paper without having any like instrument to help guide you <laughs> you know like in in the real world it's very very helpful to be able to have a piano in front of you if you're working on a transcription so it helps to have a good ear but you can use the piano to check notes if you're ever uncertain. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it definitely like you can go really, really, really deep into music theory and ear training. Like those those practices, or or as my university called ear training class, they called it aural skills, which 
I always just heard oral skills because like, oh, like oral, like the mouth, like you're able to sing back the melodies that they do. And that that is one type of ear training. But no, it took me a long time to realize that they were saying aural, like A-U-R-A-L. Is that how it's spelled? I don't know. Um, anyway, wow. Can't believe I've been already talking about this for so long. I feel like <laughs> this was going to be a shorter episode, and now we're already at the 46-minute mark, and I haven't really made my point yet. Um, but that's okay. Positive vibes, positive vibes, positive vibes. Um, yes. So, so I was in... Uh, like I said, a music theory class in high school, and I felt like I was all on my high horse because for the last couple of years I'd been taking piano lessons and learning music theory, and I already knew what chords were, and I already knew the basics of ear training. Um, was it an ear training class or was it a music? Th- I forget. Whatever. <laughs> Not the point. Um, so I kind of got overconfident, and then I kind of ended up realizing that there was still a lot that I didn't know. (laughs) But I mean, high school is the peak of my super know-it-all, above-it-all phase anyway. Um, I don't need to get into that in any more detail, but yeah. Um, So I ended up quitting those piano lessons that I was in, in like 10th grade, I think. And it wasn't exactly because of the music theory issue. It was more like I just wanted to focus more on, um, at the time, I guess, singing. I thought I wanted to be a singer, and later I decided I didn't want to be a singer either. Um, But, yeah. uh, And so, in terms of, like, music theory, I didn't keep learning a lot of things um, in that regard. I more moved to um, learning through self-instruction. So I guess what I moved away from was a formal education in ear training or music theory. Because when I, um, when, when I was in my you know, junior and senior year of high school, when I was writing these songs that I would spend hundreds and hundreds of hours writing, uh, that's not an exaggeration, absolutely not an exaggeration. You can go back and listen to the 350 hour song episode, um, where I talked more about that, but music theory was very, very, very critical to how I would write all of the, the melodies, um, well, mainly the melodies and the way that the melodies would interact with the chords and whatnot. I, would not be where I am now if not for a music theory background. While I definitely don't spend that long writing songs anymore, that is a very important part of my past and how I got to where I am. Basically, the what what I what I was doing was sort of using the bits and pieces from music theory that I had known and then like building upon that to sort of develop my own sort of vocabulary. (laughs) Um, So without getting too in the weeds, I would start writing these songs by, what am I doing? Am I just like explaining the 350 hour song again, like repeating that episode? I I was just going to get into how I made parameters and how those parameters were based on certain notes and certain melodies and rhythmic motifs and rhythm and melody and tones. And, um, yeah, 
never mind. Just go back and listen to that episode if you want all the nitty gritty details on that. But just for this discussion, what's important is that it was influenced by music theory, but not exactly in a way that I was taught. I was sort of building upon it and making my own music theory, if that makes sense. Um, which is which is a pretty arrogant thing to do, <laughs> you know. Music theory has been around for so many hundreds of years, and to just be like, I'm gonna make my own version of music theory because I know more than anyone who could ever try to teach me about it. Um, but honestly, like compared to some of the things that I was learning in high school and also later in college in music theory classes, like I'd much rather learn about the way that you put together a melody in a pop song than one of the topics that was they put way too much emphasis on, which was um, four-part harmony. <sighs> four-part harmony. Soprano, alto, tenor, bass. I never, ever want to have to do anything like that again. It was so, so annoying. Um Positive energy, Martin. Positive energy. Keep up the positive energy. So there's a certain type of classical music, which is totally choral. You know, you just have four singers. Uh, traditionally, I think two women, two men. Um, the men, you'd have one bass and one tenor, meaning, you know, just based on vocal registers, one super low voice and one medium voice, and then a soprano and an alto for the women and then they would sing together in these chords and at any given point in time you would only have up to four notes at once but you could make a full chord using those notes and you'd have to arrange a melody in a certain way that it could interact with the harmony and such and so blah 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 for whatever reason like I don't know. I feel like just from my own naive perspective, that is not what is considered to be like the greatest classical music. Like when people say, oh, this really amazing piece of classical music that stands the test of time, they're typically talking about like, you know, Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata Third Movement or whatever, which is just an insanely intense piano piece or like for Elise or like these big symphonies, you know, it's like... Piano compositions, violin compositions, uh, harpsichord compositions, and big orchestra compositions. I feel like they're not usually talking about four-part harmony, and yet for some reason that's what, in certain music theory classes, you spend weeks and weeks and weeks just drilling this one thing, how to write harmonies in a way that the different vocal lines don't intersect. Um, And I just... I, I think a lot of other Belmont students who had to take these music theory classes would also <laughs> share the same sentiment that me that um to agree with me that the four part harmony was annoying and frustrating. Because at that point, like the music theory, it's not even anything that you would do in real life. You know, it's just an exercise. It's just a math problem. You know, at, at Belmont, people who go there to study like commercial voice, commercial piano, commercial percussion, etc., they have to take so many music theory classes. And part of that curriculum is learning how to write four part classical choral harmony. And yeah, I just find that that is really ridiculous. Music theory should be a tool that helps us 
with music rather than just a theoretical mathematical exercise. Um, <sighs> but I think that kind of, well, I'll, I'll come back to that. I do want to talk about more recently how music theory has played into my songwriting and production and things. Um, I absolutely, absolutely think about music theory when working on every single song that I'm doing because I'm not just going to play random notes on the keyboard without having an understanding of how they're interacting together. You know, with almost every song that I'm working on, I do have at least some understanding of, oh, this song is based on... Uh, a C minor chord, which goes to a G minor chord, and then an F chord, and then like an E major chord or whatever. <laughs> um, because then I know that any other instrument that has to fit into the song and play chords, it has to match up with those same notes. It's just very, very basic, very fundamental um, to arranging different um, instruments in the production and stuff. And yeah, I, I I wouldn't say that I wouldn't say that I really have thought very hard about like modes or um chord scales or anything crazy like that or like passing tones. <laughs> uh a passing tone is a tone between two chord tones. So if I'm playing a melody like a C major chord and then I have a melody that goes like, that's a horrible melody, but technically, uh, this is a chord tone because it's C, and then this is a passing tone because it's not in the not in the chord. Um, and then this is a chord tone again, passing, chord, passing, chord, passing, chord, etc. Um, yeah, I've never really thought much about passing tones or whatever, except maybe when I was writing songs for hundreds of hours, but I've moved, I've moved beyond that. Um, so really, really what I have used most in, uh, songwriting and production is just an understanding of like basic chord progressions. And often, um, I'm trying to push myself to not stick to just your basic triads, like your major or minor triads, because that's really, really not interesting and it's been overdone and used so much. So I try to stick to chords that are kind of like walking that line between more complex than just triads, but not quite yet veering into jazz. You know, in jazz, you might have a super crazy um, minor, minor, major, um, sharp 11 or whatever. <laughs> and I'm not going to use a chord like that in a pop song. But what I might do is have like... Uh, uh, major chord with like the six in it. So, um, or, uh, like just an add, add nine. So like, um, and, and there's lots of ways that you can like experiment with that. And I'm still, I'm still learning on my own, but, uh, one of, one of the ways 
in which I use music theory is just trying to play chords that are not the most basic chords that everyone else has used all the time. Like, I don't, I absolutely don't expect to write a chord progression that sounds, uh, that, that is like, oh, these particular chords have never been used before. Like, obviously, <laughs> so many different people have tried out so many different combinations of chords. I'm not trying to be, like, original. I'm just trying to do something that's a little more interesting and a little bit left of center than just... That was another thing I learned in my piano lessons, that so many songs are just based off the same chord progression. And even if you translate that into different keys or start it on the, um, in the middle of the progression, there's way too many songs. Look up the Axis of Awesome four chords music video. It's such a gem if you haven't seen it. Axis of Awesome four chords. They play so many different pop songs all within about four minutes that have the same basic chord structure. Sure, they're transposed from different keys, but (laughs) it's very fascinating if you have not already watched that. Um, Yeah, yeah, I really, I, I digress. I feel like I don't really... Like, I used to be all about, oh, you gotta use music theory to write melodies. You can't just think and come up with what's on the top of your head. That's silly. Uh, Why would you just feel out a melody when you could consciously, mathematically derive a melody? (laughs) But these days, if I am coming up with a melody, I am using my knowledge of music theory like to lay down a chord progression. Um, But then after that, I'm just kind of going by gut feeling for the melody, which I never thought I'd say. I thought I was super opposed to using gut feeling, but apparently not anymore. So like... What, am I just going to start singing a melody right now and have it be super cringe? Um, yes. Oh, 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 yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. See, I didn't consciously think about any of those melodies. I mean, it was super bad. <laughs> um, I can't take the sound of my own singing voice too seriously. Um, which, which is another thing that I should probably work on. But (laughs) uh, positive vibes, positive energy, positive energy. We're bringing the positive energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Where was I going with all that? Oh, yeah. So that's just like I don't use too much music theory in my music nowadays, which I, I feel bittersweet about. I would like to see if I could use more music theory and find other ways because I do think it is a really, really helpful tool. But when when I hear people say like, ah, music theory is just for people who analyze music but can't play music. Uh, music theory belongs in the classroom, but it it's just it just gets in your way for actual music. You know, the best way to write music is to just let go of all of those theoretical concepts and just go with your gut it's like well maybe that's one way to write music or one way to come up with ideas but i don't like more and more in my life i'm just finding that all of these prescriptive reasonings like this is the way 
that it should be done. This this is the proper way to do this. It's like, no, it's not. This is art. <laughs> Music is art. You can make art however you want to make art. If it's helpful for you to study chord progressions and use all those major seven add nine chords, go ahead. If that helps make your art better, great. Um, if it's helpful for you to tune your guitar into a tuning that you've never used before, so the relationship between the strings is completely foreign and you're just playing random notes on your frets until you find one that sounds interesting and then you use that as the basis for which to write a song over it, go ahead. Like, (laughs) If it's useful for you to turn off that side of your brain to make music, great. If it's not useful, great. You can also just try switching between the two. Like, you don't need to pick a side, like pro music theory versus anti music theory. Like, no. <laughs> um, yeah. And I just like, I don't know. I think more and more I'm trying to move into this place of just being open and accepting to all ideas as long as they're not vicious and attacking other ideas you know because there are multiple ways to exist in this world generally even just beyond making music beyond making art and to say that one way of living is better or worse than another way um i just i just feel like we should be open to all attitudes and perspectives as long as they treat us with the same respect you know um i did not think that was where this episode was going <laughs> uh but here we are Um, so just in terms of the things that music theory is very critical for, you know, I mentioned earlier transcription, if you're writing down a melody or writing down a song, the, the only way to really do that objectively is by understanding the music theory and being able to read the notes and such. And the thing is, um, transcription, arrangement, like composition for film and TV, uh, all of that, like you really, really should know music theory. It is extremely helpful, but the, the most popular musicians of today, they're, they're not so much like transcribers or arrangers. Sure. Some composers are super, super popular. And I I bet you that Hans Zimmer knows music theory. (laughs) Uh, but the, what, what we have is these spokespersons of music, these super, super famous musicians, a lot of them are disproportionately pop stars or rock stars. Um, and a lot of these really prominent figures have gone on record saying that they don't know music theory, that they can't even read sheet music. And I just looked up a few examples I found from a brief Google search, an article on hellomusictheory.com, which says that Artists that have gone on record saying they can't read sheet music include Prince, Elvis Presley, Eddie Van Halen, Paul McCartney, Michael Jackson, Eric Clapton, among others. And (laughs) they're all amazing musicians, and they've all done great things. And if we take their word that they can't read sheet music, or at least can't read it well, and don't really think about music theory as they're creating music, okay, great good for them. Like, that's awesome. But that's not going to stop, you know, thousands of 
of college professors from creating courses on the Beatles where they dissect the the music theory of the Beatles and what what made the Beatles music so different and so innovative than all other sorts of music <laughs> you know there there will be entire classes on the music theory of the Beatles even if Paul McCartney himself did not know how to read sheet music which is just a really really interesting um duality i guess but yeah, I, I I don't think that the um I guess the public, like the broader non musically educated public, really understands uh the nuances there and how music theory is not just like I said, it's not just a classroom thing. It is very, very important and actively used by a lot of musicians, just maybe not the the vocal few pop stars that have decided to <laughs> belittle <laughs> belittle the the subject. But um, another thing that music theory is very, very helpful for is to help us determine objectively how similar do two songs sound to each other. Because uh, if there's ever a case where a song comes out and then a lot of people are like, oh, that song sounds a lot like this other song, you know, Um <laughs> which which can get messy because people can take each other to court or file a lawsuit and like, I want my royalties because your song sounds too much like my song. In situations like that, it's not enough to just say, well, they feel similar. You know, you have to dive into the music theory or sometimes it's called in that context, musicology, the, the study of music where you go in, transcribe everything, compare note by note, the similarities and differences between the two songs. Um, and that is definitely the topic that I'm going to be getting into in the next week's episode, the podcast, uh, the, the first part of a multi-part series I'm calling Credits Amended. Um, I did talk about that briefly at the beginning of this episode, but I'm just very, very excited. I actually wanted <laughs> the episode that I'm releasing on this date that you're listening to this. I wanted that episode to be the first part of Credits Amended, and then I wanted the the, the next week's episode to be part two. But um, I, I had to just, <laughs> it's, they're, they're very, very supposed to be thorough, well-researched episodes, very thought out, very planned, very well edited, as opposed to this particular episode that I'm recording tonight. Um, and that just, that takes a lot of time and effort. So before I'm going on a trip in a couple days, um, I was only able to really finish and pre-recording one of those episodes, which will be what you can hear next week, thankfully. <laughs> so very excited. Credits Amended is the name of the series. Uh, first episode next Saturday. Um, that will be out. And then I'm hoping to have it be like maybe two to three parts or three to four parts long. We'll see how much, how long I keep it going. But just talking about these musical plagiarism examples somewhere it did go to court and somewhere it was settled out of court etc and all of the background context and implications and everything there i just find it's really 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 interesting so there you have it um wow i cannot believe i've been talking for over an hour thank you so much if you stuck around this whole time 
I hope, um, as I always say, if you're like eating dinner or making breakfast or running on the elliptical or mowing the yard, that whatever that is, is or, or driving in your car, that that's, that's going well and smoothly and that it's not stressful. And what do I see? I see my little, um, uh, my, my perler bead creation. I made a figure from a Google video game called Lucky Cat. Uh, this was in the Google Doodle Summer Championship Games, which is a game on the homepage of the Google search engine over the summer in conjunction with the um, Olympics. Uh, yeah, look that up if you care to know more about that. Google Doodle Summer Championship Games. I think that's what it's called. Uh, anyway, yeah. I'm very tired. I'm going to try and go get some rest because I have to wake up at 3 a.m. two days from now to get on a flight to go on my trip. So wish me luck. (laughs) When you listen to this, I'll probably already be on my trip. Um, But yeah, uh, that's the end of the podcast. Just for fun, here is one of the classical pieces that I was listening to on repeat, or at least it was one in the shuffle of the songs that I listened on to repeat when I was like four or five, six years old. Um, I'm going to attempt to play it right now on the piano. Ah. Uh. Um, this is just the melody. If I actually was looking at the sheet music, I might try to play like the full two-hand arrangement, but that's not happening right now, especially this little tiny two-octave keyboard. Ah! Ah! Mistake! Okay, uh Ah What am I doing? Guys, it's late. I'm sorry. Whatever. I hope this was fun. Okay, bye. Until next time.